BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're listening to Revolver Podcasts. Good afternoon. A San Antonio district judge resigns after a federal corruption probe. State District Judge Angus McGinty is at the center of an investigation today involving the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. A former San Antonio, Texas judge goes to federal prison after pleading guilty to accepting bribes in exchange for rigging cases in his court. Angus McGinty committed the ultimate judicial sin and it cost him his freedom, his livelihood, his bench, and law license. Since pleading guilty, he's refused to talk about the details of his criminal case. Until now. I did it because I was foolish. And that one little mistake that I made, that I never really intended to make, but I did, cost me everything. Everything. But this is not just the story of a single judge taking a one-time bribe. You see, during the FBI's corruption investigation back in 2014, agents recorded attorney Al Acevedo on his cell phone, boasting he was bribing several state judges. Only McGinty was charged and prosecuted. That's because the FBI's undercover operation was compromised when word of the investigation was leaked to the very judges who it was targeting. The names of other judges and bribes they allegedly took have been kept sealed in secret FBI and court files, with many of those judges still on the bench. But I've obtained those secret files, and the truth of the courthouse corruption scandal, and exactly who was involved, will finally be revealed. I'm investigative reporter Brian Collister, and this is How to Bribe a Judge, the podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from the man who knows more about the Bear County corruption scandal than anyone else, the now-retired FBI agent who led the investigation. Michael Carlisle speaks about what he calls the most complex case he ever handled while an agent for the very first time. But before we get to my conversation with Carlisle, more on the leak. I finish my conversation with former Judge Angus McGinty, about how Carlisle's investigation was effectively stopped in its tracks, shut down after the judges it was targeting were warned not to talk to FBI informant attorney Al Acevedo because it was learned that he was talking to the feds and wearing a wire. And that warning stopped the collection of evidence of corruption against more than just the judges in San Antonio. And this went beyond judges, bail bonds. Oh, yeah, uh, you're right. Court yeah. clerks, you know, it, it, yeah. it went on and on. Uh, other defense lawyers, uh, judges, court coordinators, clerks, yeah. 
Um, yeah. And yet nobody else got charged except me. How about that? But I remember being, um, as being an investigative reporter at the time and hearing about what was happening and thinking that we were going to see judge after judge drop. Um, and then it was just you and it is never, uh, it's never set right. But now it, it made no sense how this investigation, uh, gets one judge for car repairs and, these documents are a, a closed window on the world that it was, but now we're opening that and we're letting people see the reason is because word was leaked by a federal judge, Orlando Garcia, who now is the chief justice, I believe is the proper, he's the highest ranking federal judge in the Western District of Texas. And he leaked word of an FBI investigation into other judges who he knew. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also have someone inside the assistant, uh, an assistant inside the U.S. Attorney's Office who is supposed to be on the side that the FBI is on. And he leaks word, at least according to those who are saying they were told by these people, um, Joey Contreras reported again another flare up in the air to 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 warn all of the the friends and and judges over there at bear county and yet i was the only one prosecuted well i'm glad you're looking into it i never thought anybody would and i can't believe you got a hold of of these documents i'm thinking <laughs> i'm glad you did why would you be glad that i did because you committed a crime, yeah, I you know. put guilty to it, you served time. Well, I'm not glad for that part. You're 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 still a pain in my ass, if I could say that, Brian. I'll take it. Um Yeah, yeah I uh I agreed to have you interview me knowing full well that you were gonna bring up what I had admitted to and, and you're good at what you do, but I don't think you're friends with anybody you're interviewing, um, because you are uh you are a very good interrogator. Um I hope you go. I hope you dig further. That's why I'm glad you you've uh, gotten a hold of these. I hope you dig further. Um, I don't know what else any other judge or any other courthouse person um, actually did. I know from the bits that you showed me, I'm flabbergasted. I am flabbergasted at some of the accusations. An FBI agent. Uh, in uh, an FBI 302, um, wrote, McGinty stated the reason the FBI's case against McGinty did not include other judges was because Alan Brown informed several judges at the Bear County Courthouse about the investigation. Brown told McGinty that Brown had talked to federal district judge Orlando Garcia about the investigation. What did you think when you were going through this, these records with your appellate attorney and you saw that the leak not only came from someone at the U.S. Attorney's Office, but it came from the highest-ranking federal judge. Um, well, and Alan, Alan Brown had told me that. So, so I was uh, 
at the time he told me, I didn't um, piece everything together. I was in the middle of the, of the, the storm, so to speak. But in hindsight, it makes sense. And that's why, uh, and so when Alan told me that Judge Garcia had informed him of the investigation, and even Jay told me that before Alan did, so I knew that was the case. Then I was able to make the connection between Judge Garcia and the other judges in the courthouse and who would want to, who they would want to protect instead of of me. And Judge Garcia recused himself without explanation from hearing your case. It was in his court first, so he was aware uh, of the case early on. Or or was he the first one to receive the, the wiretap information or... I believe he signed off on the wiretaps. I'm not sure to tell you okay. the truth, but I know that when my case first got indicted, um, it was in his court because the last, uh, so the case number is 500, the last uh, couple of digits, and then there's a, a dash, and then it's OG, which stands for Orlando Garcia. So I know it was indicted into his court, and I didn't put two and two together why he uh, recused himself. Um, but in hindsight, it sure does make a lot of questions. So the FBI agent goes on to uh, write that from that conversation, Brown called State District Court Judge Sid Harl and Ray Angelini and warned them to be careful because of the federal investigation. It is McGinty's belief that it was this warning provided by Brown that led to Sid Harl's decision not to run for Bear County District Attorney against incumbent Susan Reed. And now there was much... Uh, there was much being made about the potential matchup between the two, that he would run against a fellow Republican, um, and then absolutely nothing happened. So you think that's because of this? Well, I can tell you uh, that I remember um, at the time I was considering a run against Susan Reed, and I had had talks with Sid Harl uh, as to whether or not that was a good idea. And he was openly talking about it with me and with other judges. And we even had a fundraiser, if I remember correctly, for uh, Sid Harl. And um, although it may have been a fundraiser for his judicial election, I'm not sure. But in any event... um, It was pretty widely known he wanted to take on Susan Reed. Yes, it was. In fact, there were some newspaper articles about it, if I'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken. Um, And then, yeah, suddenly it... um, He decided not to. Just literally, it just dropped... I remember being disappointed. I thought he, he should have uh, run. So your question is, is it, is it a coincidence that I, I, I don't think it is? Um, well, that's what you told the FBI agent that you didn't yeah, think it was. Yeah. And then you says McGinty informed the interviewing agents that Harl used to clerk for Brown, Alan Brown, your attorney, and Brown is, quote, drinking buddies with Judge Orlando Garcia. Well, actually, Alan doesn't drink. He's, he's, he's um, um, sober. Um, uh, Sid Harl. Sid Harl. Uh, yeah, is well-known, would go see Orlando Garcia all the time. We've seen him together at, at different establishments, so that's not a, a big secret. I don't know what they talk about. I'm just saying I, I've seen them together. So in these documents, from everything that these documents relate, the leak that ended the FBI's investigation, effectively ended it, both came from the government's camp, came from... Joey Contreras, who is an assistant United States attorney, he was. and came from federal district court judge Orlando Garcia. So that's essentially what I argued 
in my uh, appeal unsuccessfully that my attorneys um, being wrapped up in an investigation in the Bear County uh, courthouse corruption ran interference to protect themselves and others and enabled me to go down. And let me say, I'm not, I'm not trying to exonerate myself. I'm not. But the whole reason that I appealed uh, my case and I felt then as I do now, as my attorneys, they had a sworn duty to do what is best for me. Just like any lawyer does with their client. You have a, a duty to defend your client as best you can. And what I argued in my appeal, and I feel this today, is they did not have my best interest at heart. They had their best interest at heart. And then secondarily have the best interests of the other judges. My interest was third at best. And that's what I complained about. And I still feel that way today. Had they defended me on a case that was very defense, def, uh, um, worthy of being defended, maybe it would have uh, amounted to a different punishment. Does that mean I didn't do what they accused me of? No, it doesn't. It just means perhaps there would have been a better outcome for me and my family. And I wouldn't have had to spend 18 months, 12 days, and six hours in a federal prison. I'm, I'm not trying to... to uh, cry to the audience. All I'm saying is, is that the effort of lawyers matters. Okay. If a lawyer is not going to exert the effort for his client, like mine didn't Alan and Alan Brown and Jay Norton didn't file one single document for me or fight one bit, but that if lawyers do fight and do try to defend their clients, most often it makes a positive effect for the client. And that's what I'm most bitter about, Brian. I'm not bitter about what the FBI did or what the government did or, or the fact that other people didn't have their comeuppance. What I'm most mad about is those two lawyers didn't do shit for me. And in part because they didn't, what happened to me was allowed to happen. Had they fought even a fucking little bit, it might have mattered. And that's what I'm most upset about. Coming up next, listen as former FBI agent Michael Carlisle details how this case got started and how it ended. And also what he thinks of Angus McGinty's claim that the agent twisted his words after he confronted the judge with the evidence that the Bureau had collected. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Before my conversation with former FBI agent Michael Carlisle, a little background. I met Carlisle while I was working as an investigative reporter in San Antonio. My job was to uncover fraud and corruption, and there was plenty of it. So during my time there, I got to know several FBI agents, including Carlisle. In preparation for this podcast, I found out that he'd retired from the Bureau 
and was now working in another state as a security investigator for a big corporation. He agreed to talk to me by phone and discuss the case. Having worked with many law enforcement officers before, I knew he couldn't own... Having worked with many law enforcement officers before, I knew he could only talk primarily about what was on the public record, so I didn't share with him the fact that I've gotten a hold of the still sealed government records from the case. So tell me about Angus. Tell me what, what he's up to. So Angus is, um, I mean, he he just got his first uh, job back in the legal world. He got a toe back in with a law firm being a paralegal, doing okay. um, doing just basic grunt work on, you know, car accidents of the day, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that um, Art Acevedo is doing the same. He's a paralegal at a law firm and just sort of plodding along and both of them are, are watching the calendar waiting for their five years where they can reapply for their law licenses. Sure. And who did, uh, uh, who did Al hook up with? Oh gosh, you know what? I don't know, but I, I can find out and I'll let you know. Oh, okay, I, I no, think it might even, I think it might be a son. I mean wasn't his son an yeah. attorney? Um, his son or daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I, I talked to him very briefly and and he of course um just wants the whole thing to go away. Um, but, uh, but Angus was a chatty Cathy. Um, yeah, he had, he had lots to say and I, and I'll forward you some links to some, uh, I, I just finished the episode one and two, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you after we get done talking and you can listen to it. So tell me, tell me about this one. Tell me, just, just recount this case for me Um, because it it was a whopper. I mean, it was a big one. It was, um, so I'm trying to, I'm going to have to think back now to, um, so early on, similar, someone had someone passed some information to me, um, about potential corruption at the courthouse and, you know, started looking into it and it centered around, around Al Acevedo. Um, and there, and at the time, it was very nebulous as to exactly what was going on, which is not uncommon. I mean, these, I mean, I'm sure you get that as well. Like, well, I'm not sure that something's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that. It's like, well, you know, need a little, need a little more than that. Um, and we started uh, focusing in on um, his relationship with, with some of the judiciary uh, at the courthouse. And it came to pass that a source of information came in and said that Al was providing like car repairs for one of the judges. We didn't know who it was. And so we started, you know, we started looking into that and, um, and I can't remember Brian did. And I'm trying to think how much of this came out. Do you have a copy of the indictment? Yes. And so the 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 auto mechanic was Michael Otten, who was very, yeah. very well known at the time as being the, the, right. the confidential human source that started all right, this. Right, right. And so, you know, Mike was you know, Mike was was a pretty good dude. He really was. He was not a um he wasn't your typical source. Um he wasn't one that was trying to you know, feed you a line or make you convinced he knew more than he knew. You know, Mike had enough, you know, I would say Mike had enough credibility with me anyway over time because Mike would say, 
you know, if I asked him something and he didn't know anything about it, Mike was absolutely not afraid to say, I have no idea. I don't know anything about that person. I don't know anything about that situation. I don't know anything about anything. But if he knew something, he would tell me. And um, so, you know, he came in with the fact that, look, you know, he's, you know, Al's basically taking care of car repairs, buying cars, things like that for, um, for this judge and uh, finally identified it as, as, as uh, Judge McGinney. Um, so we started, you know, we, we wanted to obviously be able to, we wanted to be able to corroborate that. Um, and I will say this, uh, dealing with people of this stature in the community, you know, we knew if we, if we, if we did this, it had to be airtight. There, there could be no wiggle room. Right. And so if we could corroborate documents, anything we did. And so one of the things that, um, that, that we were able to do fairly early on was a, there was a fairly major car repair that McGinney was organizing for, I mean, excuse me, that Al was organizing for McGinney. And he um, agreed, he basically told Mike to pay it with his credit card and gave all of his credit card information to Otten to order the part. <laughs> and so we were placed back, you know, very quickly the form of payment for this part back to, to Al Osvaldo's credit card. And so that was obviously a big link to... Um, you know, this is, these are very large payments coming in to the judge's benefit that he's obviously not paying for. Um, over time, we were able to, um, we were able to document a, you know, actually the purchase of an automobile that, um, that Acevedo arranged uh, arranged the sale of a vehicle that McGinney was selling and then the purchase of a new vehicle, um, which we were able to document as well. So, I mean, the, the case, the, the case early on, we had, I, I would say, um, you know, in my mind, we had overwhelming evidence, um, of, of the corrupt acts. And so, you know, eventually that led to, um, to the, the recordings of Title Three and things like that, that that really gave us an insight into how much this <clears throat> this quid pro quo actually was was how it was working. So and, it was Judge and, Judge uh, Xavier Rodriguez. You're sure, I'm sure you remember famously said it was like pigs at the trough that it was so it widespread. Was. It was, and and the thing is, and, and this was the. Um, I really wish, and there probably is, uh, there was a transcript. The um, the AUSAs out of New Mexico. So that was one of that was one of the first things. And th this case came with just about every hurdle that you could get. Um, so because Acevedo practiced in the Western District, um, the Western District recused itself immediately, and so we ended up in district of New Mexico and worked with two and I'll think of their names here momentarily two very very good AUSA um, out of New Mexico that were just 
outstanding. And they were, they were both stunned, I, I think is the proper word, at the level of, for say, familiarity there is at the Bear County Courthouse between, you know, judges and attorneys and, and DAs and all the above. And basically, you know, called it a, um, basically a climate of corruption, um, at the courthouse. Um, I wish, like I say, if you, some good reading would be that transcript of, of that hearing. Um, but it was, it was like pigs at the top. It was like, it was almost like the judges were looking at it like if they were willing to give it, they were willing to take it. Um, but we had, you know, we had we had instances where rulings were changed or were overturned or definitely affected because of the relationships that they came through these deals. And I think that's where I think that's where it, you know, it was it was bad at the beginning, but I think that's where it, it definitely crossed the line is when we moved into rulings from the bench were being affected by who the attorney was. So I read in and, one description that it was, uh, the government said that it, Acevedo basically had a scheme um, and it had to do with lowering bonds and getting favorable rulings and et cetera. Yep, yep. we saw it. Um, I mean, he could, he could at times get, get bonds lowered or bonds raised. Um, you know, Texas being the only state that allows attorneys to act as bondsmen, um, you know, it became interesting that if Al wanted a high bond, you know, that was money in his pocket. And there were there were times where he got bonds increased. Uh, there were times where he, you know, there was one particular, and I think it was the most glaring example, was he sent a colleague in his place. He had to be in two courtrooms. And he sent a colleague in his place to McGinney's court and his guy got prison time. And after the case, Acevedo asked the other attorney, you know, didn't you tell him it was, it was my client. And they asked for a motion to reconsider two days later. And two days later, Acevedo goes in the same courtroom, the exact same fact pattern and the guy gets probation. So it was it was kind of hard to it was kind of hard to say that that he didn't have a uh, a huge influence in that courtroom. So and uh, did he have that same influence in other courtrooms? Um, not to the same degree. Not not that we could prove to the same degree. Um, you didn't have this was. You didn't have you couldn't prove it to the, you couldn't prove it to the same degree. You didn't have the extent of the the wiretaps and the credit card you mentioned and things like that. It, yeah, we did not have. I, I was I will say this: the, the attorneys we had on this case had there been evidence of corruption in in other courtrooms to the same level that we had in McGinney's courtroom, there would have been more indictments. But but we we never did develop the same level of evidence. And why do you think that is? Um, you know, Otten was, was an odd place to get information. If you, if you think about this scheme and where you would get your information from the auto mechanic, that's 
providing the services. That's, I mean, like with most things in this way, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. There's, there's a lot of luck that comes in this and Otten, you know, Otten kind of stumbled into this because at one time Acevedo, um, represented him. And so it was just luck of the draw that we got that, that deep inside look into what was going on and how Acevedo was using it. Um, I just don't think we got the same level of, um, I just don't think we got the same insight into the courtrooms. And I'll say this, um, you know, I know that, you know, McGinney wasn't well off. I mean, he wasn't well established. He wasn't, um, you know, he had struggled with, I knew he'd been through a divorce and his, I know his, he had told, you know, he had told some people about some troubles he had had within his family and things like that. And I think he had some financial troubles already. So I think there was a certain amount of maybe willful vulnerability, but vulnerability with McGinney that I think just came along with the situation. Sure. He, uh, he needed it and Al was offering it. And so, yeah, it was, it was there. And, you know, I think, and and I don't think this is uncommon with white collar criminals. You, You mentioned the, you know, the SAISD, you know, the school board matters and things like that. I think nonviolent white collar criminals oftentimes can, can rationalize their, their actions to themselves and, and, and make it seem less than it is for them. Um, I think, uh, McGinney was the same. I think he was able to kind of rationalize and justify that, well, I, you know, I think to him, it was like, I can take this favor from a friend who also happens to be in my courtroom, but I'll never let it affect my rulings. I think he could tell himself that. Mm-hmm. In reality, that doesn't happen. And, and that's, you know, that's why these laws are in place. But I think he could try to rationalize it, justify it himself. And I, I think, I think that's, I think that's kind of what happens in, in these cases, um, you know, I think it, you know, obviously I'm not going to, I'm not going to spin off on, on one of my long tangents, but I will say that, you know, if you think about what a judge does and what a judge is supposed to do and what a judge is there for, the fact that they're elected almost is, I mean, it's almost counterintuitive just to think about that you're, you're going to be totally impartial and you're going to be totally by the book only. And yet you'll accept campaign donations from all the people who are going to be in front of you. That, you know, that it just is like, it's such an odd system to begin with. And then you put on top of it, attorneys being able to act as bail bondsmen as well. There was a lot of money flowing through that system that just seemed misplaced. And McGinty said that the, the campaign contributions were essentially a form of legal bribery. You know, hey, judge, you know, I, I support you, and and please don't forget my client. I, I, you know, I wholeheartedly, you know, agree with that. I mean, I, you know, I think there is some, you know, I, I think there is some some legal explosion there, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's funny that, you know, 
most legislature, most legislators are attorneys and they put these rules in place to allow this. But, you know, what, what happened in this case was way beyond campaign contributions. I mean, this was way beyond, you know, writing a $500 check and then something $500 on the table. This was, um, you know, this was, uh, this was directly, you know, paying somebody outside of that and then, you know, expecting that return, you know, to, um, from the judge. So, you know, it was, like I say, I think it was more egregious than any of the others. Um, but the, you know, I would say it, it identified and I think it probably, I mean, maybe it was the most extreme provable case, but I think it, it exposed that kind of culture and climate at the Bear County courthouse that I'm just not sure exists everywhere. I'm not sure it is as incestuous or, or kind of familial as you have at the courthouse. Yeah, and during my coverage as an investigative reporter with the various stories I did on judges, it, uh, you know, I tell people that working in San Antonio was the best time my, for, of my professional career because the corruption just seemed to grow on trees. I mean, it was everywhere, yeah. especially the courthouse. It was, um, it was eye-opening, I will say, to, you know, because I spent better part of 10 years working the, the, the criminal side and on the federal side, working the prison gangs and things like that. And, you know, it was basically after that run, it was, it was more or less decided you've been the face of that program long enough. We want you to bring a different look over to the corruption side. It was surprising to me how, like I say, an incestuous is the best word I could use because you, you had so many second generation attorneys, so many multi, you know, family individuals. You had so many, you know, attorneys that had been judges that are back to being attorneys that are working the same cases. And, and, you know, you would get cases where you would think there has to be a conflict here. And yet there, there wasn't. And so, yeah, it was, um, it, it was it was an interesting city to, to be in from a corruption angle. It was um, it, you certainly had a variety, <laughs> had a breadth and a depth of the uh, of the corruption. It was I, I think probably hard to come by in other cities. When we come back, I ask Agent Carlisle to respond directly to McGinty, and he offers an explanation as to why the FBI pulled the plug on the investigation. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, McGinty says that basically his, um, what he pled guilty to was the car repairs, period. Nothing else. There, 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 there was no other bribery, no nothing. Um, you investigated the case. What do you say? Is he minimizing it? Is he, is he owning it? Um, I, I think Angus has, has minimized his role from the beginning. 
Um, I will say that most of the corruption that we charged revolved around car sales, car repairs, car purchases, things of that nature. Um, but I would say that when you have something that is that ironclad, where it's, we had, you know, we had photographs, we had conversations, we had receipts, we, it was, it was so glaring, um, that that's, that's where our focus, you know, stayed because that, that was where we had the most ironclad. I will say, um, and this is something that I, you, you would not have known outside of, of this, but this case shut down, um, because of the pending election. Really? In, for, in what way? Well, we had been investigating and we had the car there. We had the evidence, <laughs> um, and it was, I mean, it was, it was solid and we, we knew we had it and we knew we had the case, but we had the pending reelection coming up with McGinty on the ballot when, and McGinty was announcing his, his bid for reelection. Mm-hmm. And at the time, despite what has happened since then, the Bureau had an ironclad rule about affecting the outcomes of elections mm-hmm. and interfering with that. And so basically the decision was made well above me that you need to go ahead and confront who you're going to confront because we can't have, we're not going to come in and allow a judge that we know is going to be indicted to be on the ballot and not, you know, and, and, and then be allowed to come out there. We're also not going to come in and let him be, you know, elected in the primary and then announce the, the indictment. That just obviously wouldn't be fair to the, to the citizenry. So the decision was made, stop right now, take what you have and, and go forward. And so that was the, that was the determining factor on, you know, on, on why we went ahead and pulled the trigger on the case when we did. Uh, now, once you started to pursue the case, then Otten gets killed and you go from a 15-count indictment to a five-count yeah. indictment. Yeah. That, that impacted so, the case greatly, I would think. It did. It did. Um, so, Mike, um, I was actually in Dallas the day that happened, and I was driving back. Um, and got a call from the office that <clears throat> I had been killed in his garage. And at the time, um, we didn't know if it was related to this case or not. We had no idea, but we knew it was, it was too much of, of a coincidence to take a chance on. So, um, we went to some of the folks involved in the case and had them leave town. We made sure they were aware, make sure they were safe, things of that nature. Um, and then, you know, had to come back and obviously reassess. I mean, a lot of what, um, 
obviously Otten is going to be, would have been uh, a key witness at the trial. Um, but I, it, it caused us to obviously reevaluate the case. Um, but it also, at the time, we realized that a five count to 15 count indictment probably did the same thing. It was almost like it allowed us to get some redundancies out of the way. Um, and so we did, we cut it back. I think we streamlined it. I think we made it a, a more, I think we made it a simpler case to understand. Mm-hmm. I think we made it a simpler case to prove. Um, you, I'm, I'm never going to be able to say enough about the two attorneys that worked this case. They were, they, they just were the consummate professionals and they, I mean, they did their job better than I could have ever thought it would have been done. And, um, it was, it was an interesting, um, it was interesting working with them, but they, they understood these counts and these statutes and, and what it took to, um, not only what it took to prove them, but what it took to prove them correct, correctly to a jury. I mean, you might be able to technically prove a, a, a statute but, or a count, but, you know, they wanted, they wanted it to be so a jury had no doubt. That was, that was our, that was our, our overriding kind of premises. We need any jury to sit there and be able to go, oh, yeah, I get exactly what's going on here. That was kind of, that was where we wanted to be. And so, um, yeah, but Otten getting killed, um, you know, that was tough. Mike was, um, you know, I had worked with him a long time and, uh, you know, didn't know the details at first. You know, once, once I, you know, once I got figured out what was going on, um, that it had nothing to do with this at all. It was just, you know, bad luck with a, a guy that moved in across the street from me. Um, you know, it was, uh, we just, we just had to move on from there. I mean, it was just one of those things that, I mean, it literally had nothing to do with this. It was just a bad course. Now, McGinty says that, uh, no, 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 this uh, was a longtime friend. These were just friends trying to help each other. I was trying to help my friend with some cases. He was trying to help a friend with some car repair, and it was never quid pro quo. And I pled guilty because, and we, we hear this a lot, right? I pled guilty because mm-hmm. the government was going for X number of years and I was given a deal on Y number of years. And so, mm-hmm. but for my family, the sake of my family, I just took the deal, but I wasn't, I think he said I was, um, I was factually guilty, but I wasn't literally guilty. But yes, those are the facts, but his explanation didn't seem to make sense. Yeah. And, and I think it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier is the, the, the ability to kind of believe your own press clippings, if you will, believe your own lies. Um, I believe he thought he could, he could draw a, a line between somebody doing a favor to him as a friend and somebody doing a favor for him because they wanted favors in his court. Right. That's, and he um, said that. He basically said that. You're right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I, you know, many, many times I, you know, I, I would, I would love to ask him, you know, how many car repairs have attorneys done for you since you got off the bench? Right. I'm sure it's none. Probably, probably not. And I think, I think it's a way to, 
you know, I think, I, I, you know, criminals, one of the things, Brian, I, I find kind of interesting is, you know, I was, um, I did a lot of work with interview and interrogation with the Bureau. I ended up going overseas and teaching at uh, an academy overseas, um, just teaching those techniques. And, you know, three of the, the interrogation techniques that we use are, are you know, a guy's going to minimize, a guy's going to rationalize, rationalize and a guy's been adjusted that's that's how people explain behavior that they don't want to take ownership for and we will utilize those same techniques to try to put people in a position where it's easier to tell the truth Mm -hmm. and it's and it's a horrible example but it's it's that it's easy for people to understand if you're dealing with a rapist you know, one of the ways to go at, at a rapist is to say, look, I understand, you know, you had an urge, your urge overcame you, you know, you're, it's natural. God gave you those urges, but look, you raped her. You didn't kill her. You're not a killer. So, you know, let, let's put this in perspective. And so you kind of turn the minimization back to them and you give them the ability to, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not, a, I would never murder anybody. And, you know, I just, I gave in to carnal, you know, lust or whatever. It doesn't matter the, the, the mindset. It's, it's, you want to put a person in a position to be able to tell the truth. Um, I think, you know, I think what Angus is trying to do is, is to rationalize behavior that he knows. He, he knows, uh, he says, it's not only factually, you know, illegal, it's illegal. And, and he understands what was going on in his courtroom. And, you know, I think, I think his ability to, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily begrudge him trying to explain something to his young son. Um, I don't think he ever knew this, but his son and my son were in the same middle school at the same time. Um, obviously didn't make that known to him, but, um, I, you know, I would have, you know, I would have hated to have had to admit to my 11 year old at the time that I had done something that was, that was wrong, that I had violated a position of trust I was given. Um, it's, it's funny. I don't, um, I don't really like, I don't really like think of, you know, I, I, in a way I feel, I feel bad. For Angus, I think he, um, I think he got off, got caught up in the trappings of what being a judge was. Coming up in the next episode, hear more from former FBI agent Michael Carlisle as he talks about just how widespread the corruption was that he uncovered, and hear his surprising answer when I ask him if he still thinks it's going on today. I'm investigative reporter Brian Collister, and that's next time on How to Bribe a Judge, the podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER.